Well, Jesus taught his disciples that they should commemorate his life and death with a simple meal of remembrance. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And like I said, we'll do that in just a bit. But let's do that in a similar way through his word first. The call to remember is absolutely fundamental to God's plan this side of the fall. Before sin entered the world, before God was restoring us, we didn't need to remember. Adam and Eve in the garden didn't need to remember. But now, part of his plan of restoration is not just our forgiveness, but us in communion with him, us aligning our thoughts with his. And because we're not all the way home yet, because we're on a pilgrimage, because we're people between two worlds, we have to fight to remember. That call to remember is absolutely fundamental to his word. It's simply everywhere in the Bible. And it's commanded and pleaded for in terms of life and death so many times. One example is 2 Peter 1. Not 1 Peter. We've been in 1 Peter on Sunday mornings for a while now. And I want to turn one book over to 2 Peter tonight. 2 Peter 1, and we'll start reading in verses 12, and we'll go to verse 15, this section that deals with remembrance and reminding and recounting. Peter says, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, as long as I'm still alive, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time to recall these things. Peter clearly sees his ministry, even his very earthly existence, for the purpose of reminding Christians. Did you catch them all? Verse 12, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Even though you already know these things, there's some purpose in reminding you of these things. Ever thought before? As you heard a sermon, as you read a book, I know this. As if you're supposed to reinvent the wheel every time you read something new or hear something new. As if it's not any good unless it's new, a light bulb idea. Not according to Peter. Even though you're already established in it, you already know these things, I intend always, unceasingly, to remind you. He says in verse 13, it's right. As long as I'm here on this earth, I will stir you up by way of reminder. And then verse 15, I'll make every effort for this so that you may be able at any time to recall these things again. You can't just be dependent on me to remind you, to remind you, to remind you. Soon I'll be gone. The Lord told me it'll be soon. And then you'll be by yourselves. You'll be a church. You'll be people with Bibles. And you'll need to recall these things and tell them to yourselves. Rehearse them over and over again. Peter actually, back in verse 9, also talks about remembrance there in the negative way, confronting forgetfulness. And then if you flip over to chapter 3, verse 1, remembrance is there as well. 
He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember. Stirring up your mind for reminder so that you remember. You see, Peter's just loaded with all this remembrance, reminding, recalling, language. But back to our verses, verses 12 to 15. What is it that Peter is reminding them of? It's not clear in what we read so far. In verses 12 to 15, it's not clear. He just says, verse 12, remind you of these qualities. In verse 15, that you may recall these things. What qualities? What things? Well, trace the phrase, these qualities, back. You see in verse 10? If you practice these qualities, same phrase. It's really in the Greek just these things, but you could say these qualities, these kinds of things. Verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities. Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours, you still don't know what these qualities are, but you can, like a bloodhound, you can start to sniff this out, right? We're We're not to the source yet, but we're on the trail. What are the qualities? Well, verses 5 through 7 are a chunk. It gives us a list. A list of, guess what? Qualities. Things. Do you see that? Just glance down. We'll read it in just a minute. But you see, verses 5 through 7 list these various qualities. But it's not good enough for us to stop at verse 5 if we're backing up here. You see how verse 5 starts? For this very reason... Just like that word therefore, which we talked about Sunday from First Peter, it connects things. We're noticing connections here, aren't we? We're noticing things that point us backward. So you begin in verse 5 with, for this reason, you better back up and read some more before that. Let's go all the way back to verse 3, which reads like this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Remember, we're trying to sniff out these qualities. What are they? Verses 5 through 7 list these qualities. But verse 5 began with for this reason. And so we had to go see what that reason was. Really, the point is this. Peter is trying to remind his readers of certain qualities and the realities upon which those qualities are built. So verse 3, he's essentially saying to them, remember, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. God has given you everything you need for eternal life and for growing in the Christian life. God has given you everything you need for justification and sanctification. God has given you everything you need to grow. How? By his divine power he's done that. It's his power that that makes it so that we're saved and we're being sanctified and one day we'll be glorified. Another how? How? The end of verse 3, it's in the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By his power, in the knowledge of him. Both of those are like promises, right? It's comforting. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness, both power and knowledge. 
But it's also not just, not just promise, it's invitation, isn't it? It implies responsibility. Tap into this power. Pursue this knowledge. He's given you everything you need. Now Peter's going to go on and talk about how you apply what you need, how you work it out. Remember, he's given you everything you need for life and godliness. Remember, verse 4, he's given to us precious and very great promises. I love that language. And what are the great promises? Well, the goal of those promises is that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we become little gods. It doesn't mean that we'd eventually become part of the big God, like he's a transformer and, you know, we become the foot on the giant God-like transformer. No. When he says we have been made to partake of the divine nature, he's talking about that plan of God where he's shaping us into the image of Christ. He's telling us that we're not just going to be justified at the end, but justified and glorified at the end, made like him. When we see him, we'll be like him. In that sense, we partake of divinity. That's a great promise. It's a precious promise. And there's also the promise, the end of verse 4, that we're already escaping the corruption that's in the world that's brought on by sin. We've already been released from this corrosive, corrupting, condemning way. Then is when we get to verse 5. You can see now why verse 5 begins. For this reason, on account of the great promise that he's given us everything we need by power and according to knowledge. And he's given us great promises, promises of partaking in the divine nature, promises to escape the corruption that's in the world. For this reason, for this reason what? For this reason, remember, people were to build on our faith. Let's read that section now. Verses 5 through 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith or add to your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Seven things that he says we add to our faith. It almost looks like it's successive, like it's one step and then second step and a third step. We shouldn't view it like that. This isn't a progression. It's not a ladder. You don't try to figure out which rung you're on. I'm on goodness right now. I'm hoping to move on to, let's see, what's next? Brotherly affection. That's not what he means here. It's more like maybe a spiral staircase. Right? So it does go higher and higher, but it circles over the same stuff. You never graduate from faith. Put this on the, the, the basis, the, the ground of faith. Put, put virtue on top of that. Put knowledge on top of that. You never leave one as you move on to another. You just keep adding more and building more, and this thing's growing. And what he really just means to say is that Christians are to... Go on. Not just stand on faith. Yes, their salvation is by faith alone. But not the faith that is alone, the reformers used to say. We're to progress. We're to grow. The fruit of the Spirit is 
multidimensional, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. All these things are interrelated and, and of course, just part of what it means to have the Spirit. So Peter's list here, verses 5 through 7, in some ways is just the outworking of faith in that multidimensional way. We're saved by faith alone, but not by the faith that is alone. No one just believes. No one just believes. God has a uh, multi-layered saving package. It's not just your forgiveness. It's not just heaven. It's all of him. Slowly, surely, but it's, it's all of him. It's shaping us into the image of Christ. There's a progression there. You might think of James's word. Remember James 2? That's two books back. Just flip over to that. Two books to the left is James. Remember these words in James 2? In verse 18, he says, Someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. James says to that guy, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Well, you do well. Even the demons believe that. And they have enough sense to shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Now Paul, the Apostle Paul, puts it in different language in Romans 3 and 4 and 5. There he stresses more of the aloneness of faith. We're saved by faith alone. We believe that here. We believe in grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The solas, we sometimes call them. James says salvation is not by faith alone. Is a contradiction in the Bible? No, James is looking at the same thing from a different angle, and he's saying... Faith that is alone may be saved, and that that saving faith results in other stuff. gets worked out. That's what Peter's talking about. So back to 2 Peter now. Peter's telling us that faith is to be lived out and built upon, and even with every effort, verse 5, make every effort to supplement to it, to add to it. Oh, don't add to it in the saving sense. Make sure you add to it in the Christian growth sense. Virtue, knowledge, self-control. These qualities, look at verse 8, should be yours and increasing. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to be ineffective. We don't want to be unfruitful. We don't want to have useless knowledge, but we want applied knowledge. We want real knowledge of Jesus, not theoretical knowledge, but experiential knowledge. Not just experiential, but inaccurate knowledge, but accurate knowledge. Growing in this, it being ours, because we're partakers of divinity in him. But in verse 9, he gives us the other angle. If, If you lack these qualities, If you lack these things, here's why. See verse 9? You've become so nearsighted that you're blind. You're blind to his promises. 
If these things aren't there or increasing, one option is that you're just not a Christian. You're not truly a Christian despite what you say. The devils believe and tremble. But another option is that you've become a myopic Christian. Uh, Your eyes have gone askew. And you're practically blind. You practically don't see the goal of this life. You've forgotten the brevity of this life and the eternality of the next life. You've forgotten what the Lord said and who he is and and how we should live. You've forgotten, he says in verse 9, that your sins have been cleansed. So Christian, how are you doing? Is this you? Are you adding to your faith or has it stalled? Are these qualities growing or are they absent? What words in this chapter describe you the most? Ineffective? Unfruitful? Blind? Living like one who's, been, who's forgotten that they've been cleansed? Or fighting for remembrance, yes, imperfectly, but genuinely, and perhaps increasingly so. Yes, ups and downs along the way, but generally speaking, increasingly so. Are you growing in knowing him and knowing him in communion with him? Because look at verse 10. This is how we confirm our calling and election. By practicing these things. Like James says, this is how we know, and this is how others know, that our faith is real. It's a living faith. It's lived out. It has fruit. Confirm your calling and your election by practicing these things. And that's how we enter heaven. According to verse 11, this is how we enter heaven. In this way, there will be entrance into the eternal kingdom. You see, God's saving package is a persevering package. And in his plan, there's responsibility to not just believe, but to keep on believing. Like the journey song says, don't stop believing. You can't trust every journey song, but you can trust that one. (laughs) This deserves every effort. And yet, with the ups and downs of our Christian life, We must not forget the encouragement we've seen already in this chapter. Don't forget the fact that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. So you've become myopic, blind practically. You act like you've forgotten that you've been cleansed, and you feel discouraged. You feel like you're in a miry pit, and you can't get out. You don't know how to fix it. You don't know how to get back to him. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. He can grant you repentance. He's given us, by his power, everything we need. In the knowledge of him, everything we need. Don't forget. Don't forget that through him, not through you or through your efforts, we partake of the divine nature. Don't forget that it's not us cleansing our corruption on our own. But it's through him that we escape the corruption of the sinful desires. It's in him that we've been cleansed. 
And don't forget who, who's telling us this. Peter, the one who denied the Lord three times. I mean, if anyone in the Bible other than David knows about restoration, it's Peter. Peter would say to us, seek him while he may be found. And he's good and merciful, not just in salvation, but also in repentance and restoration. Now, with all this in mind, go back to these verses, verses 12 to 15. Remember, Peter says there, with all this in mind that I've just talked about, remember he says, I intend always, verse 12, to remind you of these qualities. In verse 13, as long as I have breath, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 15, I'm going to make every effort so that you may be able at any time to recall these things. Again, we say remembrance is absolutely fundamental to Christianity and to Christian living. It's essential to perseverance. Forgetfulness is the Achilles heel for those who prove their faith was never real. Paul in 2 Timothy 2 says with these powerful, pregnant words, loaded with meaning, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. Or Jesus said in Revelation 3.3 to a church there, remember then what you received and heard, keep it. This is fundamental to the Christian life. It's fundamental to making it to the end. Remembrance is also a Corporate enterprise. You know, Peter tells us in verse 13 that his plan is to stir you up by way of reminder. Of course, Peter is an apostle. Apostles did this. They stirred the people up, the churches up, the Christians in their area up by way of reminder. The Bible does this. It stirs us up by way of reminder. It teaches and reminds us. Pastors and teachers are to do this in the church. They're to teach and remind. So much of what I do on a Sunday morning or what anyone who teaches here does is simply regurgitate the same stuff. Oh, we try to maybe say it in a different way or use a different illustration here. But We can't move beyond the simplicity of the faith that we've come to embrace. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians. But we're all to do this, not just apostles, not just the Bible, not just pastors. We're all to do this and to do it to each other. It's a corporate enterprise to stir up by way of reminder. That's the body of Christ, serving the body of Christ. Each part doing its part for the good of the whole. That's how the whole Grows. As it says in Hebrews 10, let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Stir it up. Figure out new ways to stir it up. Grow and get better at stirring it up. One of the ways, according to Peter, is reminding. Remind, remind. You think, what can I say to a friend to encourage him? He knows Romans 8.28. He knows it's going to work together for good. I feel silly saying anything. Just remind him. You know, and when you can't say anything, then weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. But, but put your lot in with them. 
And where we can comfort with words, we do so. We saw that Sunday about 1 Thessalonians 4. Jesus is coming back. Comfort one another or encourage one another with these words. I just made a resolve in the last week. I'm just going to say more often when, when something's not going well for me, when something's not, something's not going well for someone else, I'm just going to say, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. He'll make all things new. That's where our hope lies. I know that can sound trite, trying to put a Band-Aid on a gashing wound, but, but that's no Band-Aid. We have a biblical model to encourage one another with these words. Jesus is coming back. Remind each other about that. By the way, that's the theme for our upcoming conference, right? One anothering the word. That's what we'll talk about for a whole weekend. You knew I'd get that in there somewhere, didn't you? And you knew I'd get this in there somewhere as well, that forgetfulness is fought and remembrance is pursued in no small part through the Lord's Supper. It's a remembrance meal. Do this in remembrance of me. D.A. Carson wrote a poem that was put to music later on about what a shocking thing it is that the Lord would say, do this in remembrance of me. What a shocking thing it is that we would, in some ways, forget, forget our cleansing forget that he died like he did. He writes a shocking thing this that we should forget. The Savior who gave up his life to turn from the cross indifferent and let our minds veer towards self-love and strife. This table, this right, this habit, and yet Christ's words pierce our shame like a knife. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember my tears, Gethsemane's fears. Recall that my followers fled, that I was betrayed, disowned, and arraigned. The Prince of Life, crucified dead. Remember your shame, your sin, and your blame. Remember the blood that I shed. Do this in remembrance of me. So now when we eat this feast, simply spread, I blush. I forget to recall. For this quiet rite means once more I have fed on the bread that gave life once for all. Memorial feast, just wine, broken bread, and time to reflect on Christ's call. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you bow with me? In just a minute, we're going to partake of this meal. We'll first have a, a time of quiet examination. The Bible tells us to, to look inside to make sure we're of those of the faith to make sure this thing is real. If it helps you to know whether this is you or not, maybe this old catechism would help you. Who is to come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their ongoing weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. 
who also desire more and more to strengthen their life and to lead a better life. 